0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Meradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The market ended the week down on higher than anticipated producer price data, renewing investor fears of further inflation fighting moves by the Fed. The House passed the National Defense Authorization Act, or I should say its version of the NDAA. That's about $45 billion higher than what the Biden administration requested. But the outlook for an omnibus appropriations measure as well as a debt ceiling increase are dimming as Republicans prepare to take control of the House. Airbus again revised its delivery schedules as the global commercial aerospace industry struggles to keep up with demand, hence the rise in producer prices. Uh, Air India is preparing, uh, at least according to news reports, a massive order for 500 new single aisle And twin aisle jetliners from Airbus and Boeing, a massive investment from new owner Tata Group to turn the air carrier into a leading global commercial. Uh, airline powerhouse. Japan has formally announced it will join the Tempest Next Generation Combat Aircraft Program with Britain and Italy, uh, dot, 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 including Sweden, just as Australian officials have said that they would like Japan to join the AUKUS agreement among Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States, a pact that aims to improve technology sharing among the uh, allies, as well as equip Canberra with nuclear-powered attack submarines, and after a nearly decade-long competition, the United States Army chose the V280 valor tilt rotor by Bell over the defiant X-compound coaxial aircraft by Lockheed Martin Sikorsky and Boeing in the service's future long-range assault aircraft contest to over time replace the H60 Black Hawk helicopter by Sikorsky. And in space news, NASA's Orion spacecraft, part of the agency's ambitious and flawlessly executed 26day, Artemis mission to the moon and back slashed down uh, in the eastern Pacific off Mexico uh, earlier today, five miles from the recovery ship. On Mars, the Ingenuity autonomous aircraft flew its 35th and its longest flight, uh, nearly a minute long and at an altitude of 46 feet and seven miles per hour, all of which was done autonomously. We we applaud both missions uh, and the team's uh, from government and industry, including pl- prime contractors, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and of course, Aerovironment Joining us to discuss all of this and more as they do every week are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent uh, equity research firm agency partners in what is a very snowy London, or at least by British standards, a snowy London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy uh, here in Washington, D.C. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Yeah, great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yes, thank you, Vargo.
1: Despite the snow, it's great to be here.
0: Good
2: to be on, as always, Vargo. Thanks.
0: Uh, thanks very much uh, to you all. And I uh, even a little bit of Winter Wonderland sash is, uh, is a good deal as far as I'm concerned. So I'm glad you guys are enjoying a little bit of snow but not enough to make things totally miserable. Uh, Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report in Northrop Grumman, supports our cyber coverage overall, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and our coverage of the Halifax International Security Forum and the Reagan National Defense Forum. We're sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Uh, Everybody, thanks very much again for joining us, Ron. Uh, A lot of market volatility, uh, as uh, we have been seeing right last week, we had an up market on strong jobs numbers. Uh, Friday, closed down uh, on uh, a, a rise in consumer price, uh, in the a rise in the uh, in the producer price index, um, talk to us about how uh, the talk to us about the broader market, and then how the group, the aerospace and defense group, performed within it.
3: Yeah, sure. So on the week, the S and P was down uh, a percent and a half. And uh, if you just kind of run through just a sprinkling of our coverage, uh, Textron was uh, star of the week, up about two and a half percent, uh, but it gave back a lot and uh, won uh, after the decision, uh, the down select for the future vertical lift flower program. Uh, it was up almost 10 percent. Uh, Airbus was up about a percent on the week. Lockheed was down a percent and a half in line with the market. General Dynamics was down a percent and a half. Northrop was down two and a half percent. and Boeing was down three percent. So it, as you alluded to, uh, a lot of the volatility in the week was driven by uh, the producer price index, which came out on Friday and was up almost seven and a half percent, 7.4 percent year over year. Uh, Investors are going to be watching on Tuesday at 8.30 a.m. when the Consumer Price Index comes out. Uh, and then on Wednesday, the Fed this week will be you know, raising rates. Uh, the consensus view among economists on the street is that they'll raise it about 50 basis points. Uh, so that would move us up to uh, about four, 425 to 4.5% uh, for the Fed target. Uh, and then I think that the real tension in the market is what happens next? Is it one more raise? Is it two more raises? Where do we, where do we ultimately go? And where, where do rates settle in? Um, when you look at some of the other things we keep track of in the market, the VIX index you know, bottomed out and started to move up again this week, was up almost 3% uh, at 23. And just to remind you, right, it's been in this range between 20 and 30. So it kind of bottomed out at that lower end of the range. Uh, WTI and Brent crude both were uh, back to where they were at the beginning of the year. So full round trip uh, back to where both uh, were back in January of, of this year, um, and then the ten-year yield was about three point six percent. So, just to remind everybody, right, that peaked out about four point two, and it, it seemed to pull back. And we'll see the ten-year bouncing around with all the volatility around what uh, what the Fed does. And then another thing we keep uh, keep an eye on, we haven't spoken about for a little bit, is this back index, which just keeps track of all the special purpose acquisition companies that came public over the last two years, and that index is almost at its lows. It picked up a little bit, but we're kind of back to where we were at at the lows. And I think what you'll probably see as we go into the rest of this year, most certainly because market volumes will slow down as people kind of slow down for Christmas, is continued volatility into the end of the year, and then probably some more volatility early next year.
0: Uh, It uh, certainly is a very dynamic environment, uh, as uh, we've been talking about for some time with all of these different storylines going on at once. Defense still has been um, a a nice safe haven, as it uh, tends to be in times when the broader markets can uh, be turbulent. But Congress, as Congress moves through the budget process, so the House has approved uh, its version of the NDAA, even if it has a number of bitter pills in it, including rescinding uh, COVID restrictions, which the administration has, has opposed. We're going to see what the Senate does with it. The overall number is in line with expectations, but the outlook for an appropriations measure is cloudy, and it and it, and of course Congress is going to punt on uh, debt uh, uh, ceiling discussions, saying that's not a you know that's sort of a third quarter, uh, 23 issue, right? So there still could be a train wreck just you know next uh, later into next year, uh, middle of next year and beyond. Uh, what kind of questions are you starting to get from uh, investors uh, on on this, uh, if if at all at this point?
3: Yeah, absolutely. When the, uh, the NDAA came out, um, I think the market, I know for sure the market was pleasantly surprised by uh, the growth. The growth in, in, in it for defense was um, you know, certainly more than I think most people were expecting. Uh, and, and a lot of that was driven by adjustments made for inflation. The inflation adjustments put into the NDAA, I think, were better than anybody was expecting. Uh, and depending on how you want to slice it up or look at it, you got to sort of like mid-teens growth, which was, I, mean, I think, far ahead of, of what anybody was expecting. Your point on, however, will you know will legislation actually happen, and and you know will we will we actually you know get get a, a law, uh, and then in terms of omnibus funding and so on and so forth, what what happens from here has all, all kinds of implications, right? Will we be in a continuing resolution, uh, and then you know as you well know, I mean that has its own implications for both the uh, defense hardware companies and suppliers, but interestingly, interesting thing, and, and you know I'm just going to throw this in the mix because it's probably the right time to do it. Um, you know, the, the extension that Boeing's looking for for the MAX 7 and MAX 10 has to be added on to some piece of legislation and it was taken right. out of the NDAA. So if Congress isn't going to be act- actually effectively writing laws for all the reasons we all know with uh, how, you will know, have uh, you know, the, the Republicans controlling the House and the Democrats controlling the Senate, if they can't actually get laws together, there's no law that that can actually be amended to so the 7 and the 10 will be in limbo too, right? So it's, it's interesting. I mean, you have this, this potential limbo in defense spending, but then also you have potential limbo in the legislation that Boeing will need to get the 7 and the 10 out the door
0: eventually. Uh, it uh, certainly is a very, uh, uh, again, uh, dynamic uh, period. And it's good to see at least that, uh, in, you know what I mean? I mean, the only reason I phrased it that way uh, is that sometimes I ask you this question, and the answer is, eh, uh, you know, they're they're really not as focused uh, on it uh, as as investors aren't as no, focused no. on it as they should be.
3: Yeah, but I mean, what I'd add, I mean, it's, those were big numbers, and just you know, what a change a year can can make. If you go back to um, this time a year ago, expectations were still you were still at very low expectations for defense, and I, I remember after. Uh, after the election of uh, the, the, the current administration, expectations in, in the market were that you'd see real declines in defense spending, something like you know real declines that are maybe in the twenty to twenty-five percent range over a period of years. Now, right. clearly, that's not happening. I mean, so, so, we're in a, a completely different universe than where, where the market's head was then. So, yeah, when, when you get these kind of things with the big changes in it, the market
0: notices. Uh, and. Uh... You know, we were talking about volatility, right? On the one hand, uh, employment numbers are good. Inflation is coming down. In some uh, quarters, gas prices are declining, whereas we're seeing uh, volatility elsewhere. And we'll we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Richard, I want to bring you in. I want to change our conventional order. So, Sash, be patient uh, with me for a moment, because I want to bring Richard in this. From a legislative perspective and and budgetary analysis perspective, what's your read as you look at the uh, budgetary tea leaves and, and what you're hearing uh, both from clients and the folks that you talk to more broadly
2: like Ron you know pleasantly surprised by the sheer amount being added to the budget you know bringing procurement of course that's the from a manufacturing sector standpoint the most important uh, indicator above 160 billion that's pretty impressive and it was fairly evenly spread you know more f35s. Uh, accelerated E7, um, more Super Hornets. So, you know, yet another defense budget, which keeps the Super Hornet going, despite the fact that there's no, no longer any kind of long-term goal in terms of getting new export customers coming because Germany and Canada have both been eliminated from the list of possibilities. Um, you know, across the board, it was just very good for anybody with a platform in production. Uh, and amazingly, they actually permitted the retirement of 21A10s. Uh, So uh, that's 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 an interesting development. Um, Obviously, DOD had been hoping to use the cash saved by producing the F-35A intake over on, uh, you know, NGAD and JAD and alternative engine. But they might have that money anyway. So, uh, you know, it was all good, I think, from the standpoint of anybody with an existing defense portfolio program.
0: And uh, was the number as high on F-35s, right? I mean, any uh, additional aircraft uh, are welcome, obviously, from a modernization perspective. uh, But those numbers have been somewhat uh, depressed. Some question about production capability and what the department wants to accept. Uh, Do you expect that these numbers are also going to survive the Senate, ultimately?
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I tend to be pretty bullish. Um, Right now, overall sentiment uh, is, is extremely positive. You know, 38F35As is, is certainly better than the original. I think we started at, what, 31, not as robust as the, you know, the typical 48 or 50 that we've gotten in the past, but obviously you've got an additional 16Cs and something like a bit more, 18, I believe, Bs. So it's, it's pretty good from an order intake standpoint. One thing that's worth noting, though, is that converting those into firm orders has been uh, a bit of an uphill uh, process with Lockheed Martin, obviously, infl- inflation possibly plays a role in price negotiations, but there are so many orders that have uh, been announced on the export front and, of course, in DOD budgets. And yet, so far, you know, the latest round of, uh, of LRIP and the future full-rate production orders seem to be very slow to negotiate firm up and become actual uh, you know, jets in the pipeline.
0: Um, And I I should point out uh, that both uh, Ron and Richard are on the move uh, as we uh, tape this. uh, Ron is uh, at a uh, fencing meet. So we wish uh, the young athlete all the best as he goes through this process. Uh, And uh, so if you hear some voices in the background, uh, that's what's going on. Sash, uh, bringing you into it, talk to us a little bit about broader markets. I mean, if you want to comment on anything uh, that Ron uh, and Richard had to say, please uh, go ahead, especially in regard uh, regarding um, aircraft production rates. But also, more importantly, how uh, defense and aerospace names performed uh, against the broader European market over the course of the week. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll, I'll, I'll focus on that. Um, it's a pretty short answer, which
1: is that the European aerospace and defense sector overall was incredibly flat. Uh, not a single stock was either up or down by by even 2% this week. Uh, on average, the sector was up 0.2%. Civil was up about 06 and defence up 0.1%. So, you know, there there was very, very little performance this week. And that's a surprise because we had two big pieces of news flow, one civil and one defence, that should have caused, or, you you know, you might have expected to have caused the the sector to, to move out. Now, we're going to talk about airbus production rates, um, uh, in a minute but you know that clearly was a uh, you know a, a, di- a significant disappointment for Airbus and although it had been well trailed over the previous you know 10 days or so still uh, you know coming out with a with you know second downgrade of the year was a, was uh, an issue but Airbus shares pretty much ended ended the week flat at just under 112 euros. The, the positive news was on the um, uh, the program that we used to call Tempest the uh, anglo-italian possibly swedish who knows um uh next generation combat air program but which has now formally been signed including uh japan japan is folding uh, the fx f3 program into that and um you know that That talking to the companies they're very very positive about that but ba systems was up 1.4 percent on the week leonardo off 1.3 percent so you know, the, the, the markets have effectively discounted, uh, you know, or continues to be very good at discounting news, whether it's good or bad.
0: And speaking of Airbus, this is the second time this year uh, that Airbus has adjusted rates uh, downward. Talk to us a little bit about what that means and whether or not there are going to be more rate adjustments as we go forward.
1: Yeah. So Airbus started 2022 talking quite punctually about delivering 720 aircraft, middle of the year. They cut that to around 700, and they're now saying um, below 700, and then they sort of, you know, box around and say will not is not expected to fall materially short of the around 700 delivery target. So let's say 685, 690, something like that. But clearly, it's going it's going to start with a six, not with a seven. Um, they talk about a, a complex operating environment, which is a is a catchall. Let's be honest. I we don't think it's any coincidence that the programs that appear to be suffering the most in terms of their uh, orders or their deliveries up to and including November, the A220 is just not working for Airbus at the moment. Um, I mean, they only delivered six A220s at the whole of November, 45 for the year so far. They're supposed to be running at six per month. They're nowhere near that. They're about two thirds of that at the moment. And the A320 is also, you know running a bit slow relative to a rate of between 55 and 60 which is where they should be at the moment um and we we suspect that you know the common culprit for this is the pratt and whitney geared turbofan uh, they clearly ever still has problems with the cfm leap on the a320 neo and they clearly have problems with um interiors but uh we suspect that the uh, the geared turbofan is is the culprit here let's things back do we expect another cuts to this year's forecast no But we don't expect anything exciting for 2023. Airbus can't get away with cutting forecasts too often. They run out of financial margin. At some stage, they actually have to bring their financial forecasts down. And that would be, you know, that would not be a positive look for the company. So we suspect they're going to start 2023 with very, very cautious guidance and hopefully then raise it through the year. But they really can't afford to do what they've done this year, which is have two cuts.
0: Um, uh, Richard, I want to go to you to comment on uh, the Airbus news also, but the large Air India uh, order, uh, it includes a home for 50 jets that were bound uh, to China uh, that will now have a new home, right? I mean, originally it was 150 airplanes, uh, and now it's, it's 500 as Tata Group wants to obviously transform Air India, uh, uh, which has had a long and storied history as India's flag carrier, um, I, I think they helped found it. And then it was a government concern. And now it's back in Tata's hands. I apologize if I'm getting the history wrong. I'm going purely uh, by memory on this. Uh, but talk to us more substantively about the Airbus rate issues. Uh, and then, you know, what happens to that? Uh, you know, what, what the Air India order uh, signifies for the entire ecosystem, because that's an awful lot of airplanes and could compensate, uh, for example, for a drop in Chinese orders. Yeah, you know, if real, if real.
2: These are bull times, obviously. And if nothing else, we're going to have a really fantastic, by recent standards, book to bill ratio this year, you know, depending upon what's booked in the final month of the year or something, certainly on the order of about 1.5 to 1. That's not bad. Um, Rate. Yeah. You know, obviously, they seem to bid off more than they can show in terms of uh, ambitious goals of rate 65 and 75 and all that. Uh, Some of it is certainly the gear turbofan. A lot of it is, you know, just, I mean, the LEAP1 folks have issues too. I can't help but wonder to what extent could Airbus have made this better by not being such a tough negotiator on price if they had said, you know, something that uh, other people have said, like my friend Kevin Michaels had certainly said, which is basically we're going to be the better customer. We're going to give you more money. You won't have to worry about working capital on the ramp up. We just give us priority, and they appear to have done the opposite. They appear to have copied Boeing in terms of the uh, you know, Partnership for Success approach to price negotiations. I can't help but wonder if that didn't make a difference. But there are so many reasons that this ramp just isn't happening on time. Obviously, you've got the broader issue of material availability, fluctuating availability of titanium castings and forgings, nickel, whatever else, and of course, the omnipresent issue of labor, labor, labor. So many reasons to, you know, many reasons to continue to be skeptical, as Sash says, especially into next year. This looks like it's an 18 to 24 month process. Um, I can't help but wonder if this isn't all good somehow. I mean, obviously, it's painful to watch, and I'm sure they're not happy. But at the end of the day, you're seeing that kind of irrational exuberance. I mean, traffic is good, still not back to where it was. Um, and there are plenty of reasons to think it might plateau out a bit for a while. And you know everyone was basically buying lots of next generation single aisles in anticipation of right. a faster comeback. So I can't help but wonder, maybe this is enforcing a certain degree of capacity discipline in the market, and we might not actually regret that this ramp up didn't happen exactly as planned. Um, as for Air India, you know, wish them all the best. But, you know, they have to, I mean, reforming an organization, formerly the classic state-owned enterprise airline, is going to take a lot of time. And they're up against Gulf carriers, particularly Emirates, that have done a great job going after the India market. So it's going to take up a long time before they need anything like these planes, and we've got so many false starts and orders. Remember the great gung ho days of Kingfisher and Jet Airways and uh, other organizations that, well, turned out they didn't need those jets after all, and frankly, they didn't survive anyway. So you know, it's impressive. It's good in headlines, and it's certainly good for Boeing to find a home for those Maxes that were heading to China in theory, but you know, it might not be quite what it seems.
0: Ron, uh, just want to bring you in on this uh, to get your sense both on uh, the Airbus uh, deliveries issue, but also uh, what you make of uh, Air India, because if it is true, then it's terrific, right? I mean, the whole uh, whole industry could use that kind of a shot in the arm, especially when uh, Asia uh, and when Chinese orders uh, are questionable. The reality is, how realistic is it? Uh, especially when there are established carriers uh, where where that traffic uh, has gone? Give us your sense on both.
3: Yeah, I mean, a, a couple of thoughts. Um, when you when you think about uh, production rates at Airbus or Boeing for that matter,
0: um,
3: Richard, I think, raised the key point, which is going to be the most important factor in 2023. And I would argue it's going to extend into 2024, which is labor. Uh, you talk to any CEO uh, at a... At a an OEM, a prime, all the way down to the smallest machine shop um, in the Midwest or, you know, in the middle of Canada, they'll all tell you, they need 500 people and they only have 300. Uh, and getting getting that trained labor force is going to be difficult and it's going to take time for everybody involved. I would argue, and, and maybe Sash can add a point to this, probably not as bad in Europe. Uh, the European labor force seems to be in better shape than uh, the labor force in North America. Um, but the North American suppliers are important to the entire industry. And uh, that, that's one of the key bottlenecks that's going to have to be worked through. And that just aggravates the, the situation uh, with castings and forgings and, and electronics and, and, and so on and so forth. Just so that just aggravates the whole situation uh, with regard uh, to the supply chain and, and everything, everything that we know. I think one CEO that I spoke to actually coined this phrase that um, I I like, job abandonment," where it's in certain markets, it's been so tough that uh, you have folks come into work, both white collar or blue collar, it doesn't matter if you're on a factory floor machining or if you're an engineer designing something, Um, they show up for work and then on Thursday they don't and they look into LinkedIn and they find out they showed up someplace else and, you know, they got a 30% raise and they didn't even bother quitting, right? So there is there is strong demand for uh, you know, talented, um, skilled labor uh, in, in North America. And that's got to get worked through. And that's just going to take time. Um, with, with with Air India, um, you know, if it all plays out, that's great. But I guess my sentiment falls kind of right in line with with Richard. Uh, it's just, we'll see. Well, you know, I mean, don't count your chickens before they hatch. but. Uh, and, and ultimately, um, demand hasn't been the issue in the industry, right? I mean, demand for wide bodies has, right? So if you get some more wide body orders, I guess that's a welcome thing if, if they were to get delivered. But demand for narrow bodies isn't an issue. It's the industry's whole. It's upside down. It's like the business jet market. Demand for business jets isn't an issue either. It's just you know the it it, it you just it's a it's a supply problem, not a demand problem. So uh, if indeed this demand were to play out cool but it doesn't change the ramp up it doesn't change labor it doesn't change all the all the issues that we're having um but you know i don't know i mean i'd put a discount rate on those orders just because of what history has suggested has happened in that market and as richard suggests they're going up against some pretty formidable carriers serving that market and serving you know that region of the world
0: uh sash uh bring you into uh your analysis of both or your analysis, yeah, <laughs> at least of the uh, of the Air India uh, stuff, given that you you did have a chance to take a you know start us off on the Airbus discussion.
1: I, I share Ron and Richard's skepticism about Air India uh, and the importance of it as a customer. Um, you know, Tata is a fairly you know a fairly financially strong company, so it should be able to recapitalize Air India. I suspect at the expense of its own capital. That's the way things happen. Um, I would really worry that since you know, the last time Air India was a, a force to be reckoned with in Indian aviation, let's be clear about that, um, the, the Indian Air aircraft airline market has been transformed by the very, very powerful low cost airlines particularly Indigo, it's important to remember that from Airbus's point of view, Indigo already has orders uh, in, in its backlog for over 500 A320 and A321 NEOs. That accounts for eight percent of the entire Airbus backlog. Indigo didn't exist 15 years ago. Um, and Air India and Tata are, are now trying to attack an incredibly strong uh, low-cost carrier. Plus you've got you know go, uh, the likes of Go Air. Um, and then in international markets, as Richard rightly points out, um, they're trying to take on all of the Gulf carriers. Um, good luck with that. I'll, I'll sit back and um, you know call for popcorn. I, I think it's a it's a tough one. But there again, the nature of this market is that the OEMs uh, let everybody place orders with a tacit assumption that one in three will fail, and. Another one in three won't do terribly well, and the and the you know the last one will do really really well. They never expect all of the airlines that order to do equally to do terribly well and equally well.
0: Um, we we still have a lot of stuff uh, to uh, cover. And Richard, uh, I want to go uh, to you. We've been talking on this program uh, for a long time about Japan's uh, interest in. Tempest, something obviously that was fueled also uh, by the Ministry of Defense Uh, as a partner. We've talked about how the Swedes are sort of sliding off to the side, whereas the Italians are very core to this. You know, I, you know, Sash has been taking the lead on this, so I'm, but as we were going back and forth preparing for this, uh, there was a story that ran in The Diplomat with the Japan correspondent from Jane's saying five reasons why the Japanese uh, are going for Tempest, obviously a country that historically has gone for American combat aircraft. Um, It looked like after the United States said no to transferring the F-22 towards the end of its production life. Um, the Japanese were looking at partnering and in getting into the Eurofighter. And then Tokyo surprised everybody by going uh, to the F-35. Now that it has a nice position on that program, it looks like it is looking beyond. And Tempest uh, is uh, the next phase of that, especially as the next generation air dominance or NGAD in the United States uh, is is seeming seemingly not going to be materializing on their timeline. You said you had eight reasons, not just five. Well, walk us through you know, why the Japanese uh, are doing this, why it's a good deal. Uh, And then, Sash, I want to get your sense about what this means for the partnership, because the Japanese by themselves may buy more airplanes than the RAF, uh, right? And may be buying more airplanes than the Italians. Uh, And as a consequence, nobody questions why the United States is in charge of the F-35, because we're buying most of those jets. Go ahead, Richard.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, I've got eight reasons. There are actually many. And uh, I think we've spoken about the beauty of this concept before and now it seems to be moving towards reality. Uh, I'll focus on two that matter, which is that these two, uh, air services have an extremely, um, well, similar set of requirements. You know, they don't want a strike fighter yet they're getting joint strike fighters. Um, they want a high altitude, fast and fast time to climb interceptor. And frankly, given the U S moving in the direction of, uh, JED, which is going to be unaffordable by pretty much anybody, aside from maybe 80 for the U.S. Air Force or something, they're very smart to go their own way. And another thing I really like about it is that this is the first time Japanese industry has been in a kind of alliance of equals. You know, historically, it's been them as a partner on a Boeing pro- program, them doing licensed production of F-4s, F-15s, and then, you know, the f 16 as the f2 really not a lot more than license production with a few uh, you know bespoke technologies bolted on this is the first time they're actually going to be dealing with somebody as an equal bae and mitsubishi i think are, are pretty darn close to equality uh, obviously rolls-royce knows more about engines than ihi but rolls-royce has been so badly beaten up that i think they'll need to treat ihi as an equal I think uh, on so many levels, this is going to be a, uh, a marriage of equals that's designed to meet mutual requirements. And, uh, you know, given the fact that the U.S. is focusing on NJAD, there might be a decent export market, too, because eventually the F-35 is going to, you know, run out of steam and this thing will come online. And a lot of the core countries will have been stuffed to gills with F-35s. But still, in the long run, there's an additional requirement. And uh, I think they'll do pretty well with it.
0: Uh, and I think that it's also kind of a historic shift, right? I mean, because uh, Japan uh, used to buy its warships, for example, as as some people uh, may remember uh, from uh, uh, British and Scottish shipyards and, and Italian ones as well. Go ahead, uh, Sash, in terms of what else uh, to add, right? Because I mean, we've been discussing this on this program for uh, a long time.
1: Look, I think this transforms the, the program that was formerly called Tempest and may still uh, go by that name uh, in first places in Europe. Um, as much as anything else, it, it makes it so much harder to cancel and it makes it so much more uh what better uh financially backed than it was before. I, you know, British and Italian government's fine, but put Japan in as well. Loss of face matters in every single one of those countries. Um, I don't think it's conceivable now that the uh the UK or, or Italy could um uh play around with. The funding of this in any serious way any more than, than the Japanese can. Um, you're absolutely right. You know, Japan will probably order at least as many uh, aircraft as as the Royal Air Force. Um, and what this means is that um, what we now I think have called GCap or something. Um, global yeah, combat global program, global what is
0: it? Go, global Combat Aircraft uh, Program is that what it's uh, or new air, moniker? Yeah, is? Air,
1: well, I think, you know you know this year anyway. Um, is clearly in competition with the franco-german scaf fcas program um, SCAF and F- scaf fcas has been uh, has had all sorts of problems uh, associated with leadership between um, France and Germany it, you know it looks like it's back on track at the moment but it's lost several years in the process and certainly but you know when DASA talks about it they talk about it as being a program for the 2040s gcap could well be 5 7 years earlier than that and the fact that it's got um, three significant anchor uh, customers now, Sweden may yet come back in, but you know we'll we'll see. Um, that should give it good economics. Even though I suspect what will come out of a Japanese factory may well look a bit different to what comes out of a, a British or an Italian factory. We'll see. Um, but you know I think this is going to be a, the program that is going to to uh, be better funded, probably be ahead of schedule compared to. Uh, SCAF and FCAS and that's going to make for a very very interesting set of competitions for additional customers going going forward
0: Ron, uh, let me go uh, over to you and see whether or not there's anything more to add. You and Richard were kind enough to join us uh, last Tuesday uh, in the wake of uh, the U.S. Army's decision to avoid. Ron, I want to go over uh, to you. You and uh, Richard were kind enough to join us last Tuesday in the wake of the U.S. Army's uh, decision to award Flora to Bell uh, and the V-280 Valor over the Defiant X, which uh, was by Lockheed Martin Sikorsky and by Boeing. Uh, The Army and the contractors are saying nothing. Uh, more than they initially said, expecting that there was going to be a protest, and, and indeed, um, it, it does look like um, you know Lockheed and Boeing are certainly going to be fighting for their corner uh, against uh, the the program. Um, anything more to report on it, or any developments from either of you that you think is interesting over the course of the week?
3: Yeah, I mean there wasn't a heck of a lot. I mean, investors ex- expected it. Um, I think that was reflected in the movements of both stocks, I, I, as I mentioned at the beginning of the. Of the podcast lockheed was in line with the market and Textron was a bit ahead of the market but i mean there wasn't really in the end uh moves that were you know, all that uh, kind of out of you know, what one wouldn't expect uh so i would say this though however you, when you do talk to investors there is a camp of folks that believe it actually won't get contested uh, and the logic there is that you know lockheed does have um, content on the v280 in terms of electronics warfare stuff um and that, you know, ultimately, that the, the army will need to buy more helicopters. So um, is it really in their interest to, to, to contest it? If they win, albeit a smaller piece of it, and in the end, they end up selling some more Blackhawks down the road anyway. So, uh, but we'll see. I mean, you know, I mean, the street kind of comes up with these views, you know, and who knows, right? But there, there is a camp. So uh, if there is a, if it is contested, that might come as a little bit of a surprise. Now, I mean, ultimately, I was, I was kind of surprised when folks were articulating to me an argument that maybe there won't be a, it won't get contested. But, but we'll see. Uh, I would say you've got
0: nothing. You've got nothing to lose. You, you really have nothing to lose um, ultimately. But, but I mean, I do, I do take that right. I mean, what's Lockheed going to be like? Not supply contractually. Uh, You know, of course, it'll contractually. I mean, the company. Uh, is a is a coveted partner because it has a reputation of delivering uh, at the end of the day. Uh, and and, and, I, and supplier. I
3: and I guess Vago, I mean, it really is the the one that comes out with this with like no flowers in the cup is Boeing, right? <laughs> they got nothing, right. right? So you know, I don't know how much of a vote Boeing has on that. Let's contest this or not, Camp, but, uh, but we'll see. Uh,
0: in, indeed, right. I mean, the more interesting thing is going to be what happens to uh, Farah as as well. Although that one is uh, is an all Lockheed. Uh, aircraft against an all-bill aircraft, right? I mean, so B- Boeing has even less of it, although there is a sense that Chinook work uh, and continuing Apache uh, upgrade and support work uh, would be able to sustain uh, Boeing uh, for uh, for some time. Uh, Richard, anything you want to add before we go to SASH and then we wrap the program up in a couple of minutes?
2: No, not really. I mean, you know, remember, if Textron had lost FARA, that would result in Major disruption, the disruption of the rotorcraft industry. The way things go on, you know, there's it's everyone is fine. So I, I just don't see this changes very much, except that it it helps Textron survive as a helicopter manufacturer, which would have been in doubt if they hadn't won this. But you know, Boeing's doing really well with Apache sales, and and uh, Chinook will come back too. There's really no competition to speak of, and uh, of course uh, there'll be Blackhawks forever, as we have said before, and. And of course, uh, you know, OIGO and other business units at uh, Lockheed Martin do okay with some V-280 work. So I I just don't think this is going to be a major challenge moving forward. Except, of course, if for some reason, everything the Army has in mind for the Pacific changes, either because of the threat or whatever, and all of a sudden the budget goes away, and we have a repeat of Comanche in the post-Cold War world. That is about the only threat I can see to the program.
0: Right. Um, uh, Sash, do you see... Uh, this uh, aircraft uh, being popular with Europeans, if they can pull it off uh, at a price point and a support point um, that that makes it attractive, uh, because it is a very different kind of airplane, right? I mean, as Ron has pointed out, it's not a helicopter; it's a it's a turboprop that can land and take off vertically, uh, which is a different kettle of fish with you know a speed of 300 knots and a range of 900 miles.
1: No, it's a helicopter. Flies in the same place a helicopter carries the same loads as a helicopter does the same thing. And in a European context, and look at Ukraine, it gets shot down the same way as a helicopter. Um, I'm sure they'll sell some in Europe, but I don't think very many. There's a, I mean, you know, there is a European program to try to come up with a next generation tilt rotor. That's probably 10 to 15 years off. But I think that any purchases by of the V280 in Europe will be very small infills while European industry and European politicians try to decide actually whether a vertical lift machine perhaps we we want to call it that, is is a high priority for um, defence budget dollars or not. I think the the war in Ukraine has changed a lot of views about, um, and I'm going to call them helicopters because that's what they still are, but air assault in general. Air assault has proved, certainly in Ukraine, to be an astonishingly um, high-risk proposition. Um, And as such, it's it's a lower priority for almost everybody's budgets uh, I don't see it. I'm afraid. I, it's a shame because I think it's a very impressive machine. Um, I was privileged to um, spend some time with the, the Bell people at the Farnborough show, and I thought that their their products and how they have positioned it was, is deeply impressive. But in a European context, and the the European context has changed even in the last sort of three, four, five months. Um, this isn't. I think where the money will be spent. The Polish decision to buy. You know, five million Apache's or whatever it is they they've currently got on order. Notwithstanding, <laughs>
0: uh, uh, the U.S. Army, of course, would would push back on you and say that they don't use air assault the way the Russians have with the vulnerabilities, uh, et cetera. We don't we don't have to um, get into uh, get into all of that. Do you think that? Uh, uh, I that mean, Bargo,
1: Bargo. Be- when we do, I'll take you on on that.
0: I, I I, am but, I am, I am merely passing along what the leadership of the United States Army has to say about it. I'm very happy for you to de- yeah, <laughs> debate I've, them, I've, I've, either I've, directly I've, or indirectly, <laughs> Sash. Um, they, but I, I want to just quickly get a sense from all of you very quickly, because I do want to have Ron end this on the Mars Pro, but in 30 or so seconds or less than a minute, does the V280 doom the 609? We don't need 30
1: seconds for that, yes. It's dead. I mean, it's always been an oddity. Uh, It's taken forever to certificate, which tells you that it's a problem. I mean, it's basically it's the 737 max of tiltrotors. So, of course, it dooms it. Richard?
2: Um, I would would tend to I'm not so sure I'd call it the, the Max of Rotors, but uh, yeah, I mean, one of the selling points of the b 280 is that the engines don't rotate, which is uh, much simpler and safer and better. And here you've got the 609 technology dating back three decades. And uh, sure enough, the engines still rotate. Not a transmission thing. It's an engine rotation thing. It's looking pretty obsolete, pretty expensive, not sure about the market. And the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is maybe eight or nine a year, so how it is still alive. I'm not 100%, but you can't uh, rule it out as staying alive, too, for some reason.
0: Uh, Indeed. Um, Ron, I want to bring it uh, back to you. Uh, Artemis uh, mission executed flawlessly by uh, NASA, Orion, uh, also seems to have done a tremendous job. Obviously, there's going to be months of engineering analysis on all the data, uh, as well as the hardware, but it looks like it performed well. Uh, and then we had the extraordinary 35th flight of the Ingenuity uh, on Mars, which I just think is amazing. I mean, it's like 1% of Earth's atmosphere, uh, right? And and this thing is is flying, flying regularly, and actually, you know, allowing us to see a lot further uh, uh, farther, uh, than we uh, would otherwise have seen improved so that autonomous aircraft can operate, deploy, um, you know, on another world. Anyway, give us your sense as a space nut uh, on both of these and what you found interesting or not.
3: Yeah, I mean, on Artemis, I mean, it's just, it's great. I mean, it just kind of brings back the whole memories of, of Apollo and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, we're seeing this, this whole resurgence of, of space activity, commercial space human space flight, so on and so forth. So I mean, it's just the the whole mission is um, just uh, from my standpoint, you know, just fascinating, wonderful. It's a great thing. And we're seeing, you know, real interest in space markets. uh, So uh, that's, I mean, I can't say enough there. Ingenuity is totally awesome, right? I mean, I I don't know if people really appreciate It's the first aircraft to operate on a different planet. And like you said, it's, it's like operating a helicopter at 100,000 feet. And I think the highest, the, the highest record of a helicopter flight uh, on Earth is 42,000 feet. And that was pretty tricky. Um, right. the, air gets, <laughs> the, air, the air gets pretty thin, uh, as you mentioned. And you know, the, the ingenuity has got these um, massive, relative to the size of the, the, you know, the, the, the fuselage, if you will, got these massive blades, uh, and they turn really, really fast. Uh, so it's just across the board when you're on a different planet, you're flying in, uh, conditions that you wouldn't even imagine to do. And you're doing it, uh, being essentially autonomously. Um, uh, so it's across the board that checks all kinds of cool boxes. So, yeah, I mean, it's big, big victories for, uh, NASA and all the companies involved with that, um, across the board.
0: Uh, I have to say, uh, on some of this stuff, actually the flawlessness of it is actually, I think. I mean, it makes it all the more amazing to me and us, uh, but I have a feeling that, you know people just aren't paying attention and they ought to be because it was pretty, uh, pretty amazing. A spacecraft um, did an amazing uh, journey um, and returned at almost 25,000 miles an hour uh, through the atmosphere. If anybody was well, just watched the YouTube uh, video of the live feed at the speed at which Earth fills the window of Orion. Uh, as it is coming back to Earth, uh, it's it's actually pretty awe-inspiring. You were watching it at real time, uh, going like, wow, you know, it was pretty far away yesterday. Uh, and then today, you're just like, holy crap. Uh, but, you know, when you're flying at 17,000 plus miles an hour, uh, stuff tends to come at you. Pretty quickly uh anyway everybody thanks very much for joining us really appreciate it best of luck to the young athlete uh sash i hope you don't have to dig out too much snow and richard thank you for just being you uh really appreciate it guys hope you all have uh, a great day great week uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week thanks a lot
3: yeah thanks Thanks. vargo Uh, looking forward to
0: it
2: Uh, thanks a
1: pleasure as
0: always
2: great to be on as always vargo thank you